Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Good morning, everybody, and welcome back to Safety Perspectives from Region 6. I'm John Serma, one of your co-hosts here in Houston, Texas, and with me on the line, I have my partner, Frank Davis. Frank, would you say hello to everybody? Hey, John. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Hope you enjoy our third installment of our Fat Cat series. So as a little bit of a recap with respect to the first episode, we talked about scene preservation and things relative to scene preservation. The second part of the series related to privilege, reports, communications, etc. And this part of the podcast series is going to relate to uh, and different people call them different things, disaster response plans, emergency response plans, um, crisis management plans, uh, disaster management plans. You can kind of pick and choose the terms you wish to, to use for those plans. But in a nutshell, these are the things that if you're prepared and if you do preparation in advance of that horrible day coming, you're going to have a plan in place. I'm going to be asking Frank the questions. Frank's going to be answering, but as always, there's probably going to be a little bit of banter between us. Always a little banter. I'll tell you this, though. If if you don't have that crisis management plan ready uh, when the crisis hits, then it's really difficult to decide what the strategy is going to be once the crisis is upon you. And so uh, I think this is a great way to finish up this series is talking about elements of a crisis management plan, you know, and like all of our podcasts, this is more of an informational series, uh, just giving employers something to think about. This certainly isn't legal advice. We wouldn't presume to do that uh, on a national basis through a podcast, but these are items that employers can be thinking about, and we'll, we'll highlight those as we go through, and you'll certainly hear John and I talk about these concepts uh, back and forth throughout the, the episode. To your point, Frank, this is a plan and plans don't really happen the moment something happens. Plans are things that happen in advance. Can you give our audience some suggestions, some ideas relative to what the contents of the plan typically include and, and what types of things they should be thinking about relative to what they're going to do in response to a disaster? I would say, and I'm, and I'm not going to lay this out in any particular order, but number one, first thing I consider in a crisis management plan is what are you going to do when a certain crisis hits? So and the subject of this podcast is fatalities and catastrophic injuries. Uh, so the place I would start typically is with what do you do to respond to the crisis, uh, whatever that crisis may be. Uh, and likely the, the first thing you're going to think about is how to, like we said in the beginning of, these podca- of this podcast series, the first thing we're going to look at is how do we take care of 
the injured employee? What, what do we do to, to take care of the scene? And all of those things we discussed in, in episode one and episode two are things that I would typically see in a crisis management plan. The second element that I typically would see in a crisis management plan is how do you respond to investigators coming in? Uh, lots of times you get the police coming in to conduct uh, a criminal investigation and on the heels of the police, if it's a reportable event, you probably have OSHA coming in. Uh, OSHA may hear about it from the police, may hear about it from the fire department. They may dispatch somebody before you even have a chance to call them. So he, he, again, you've got to have that investigation team identified and ready to go. We've got to have that investigation team queued up and educated as to what to expect and what the company rights are and how far they're going to go. That's the uh, immediate managing the crisis at the time of the crisis. The other uh, elements that I like to think about in a crisis management plan is how am I going to communicate? How am I going to communicate to employees? Because we want to be the source of answers for employees, right? Uh, we don't want employees going to, to somebody else asking questions. We'd like them to come to us uh, as the employer uh, because we're thoughtful uh, and we're able to help the employees through the crisis. Uh, and one of the ways we do that sometimes is by hiring counselors, uh, but we always do it through good messaging. And a good crisis management plan, in my experience, I usually see that they have some, some concept employee communications already prepared so that the company's not having to create them on the fly when everybody's stressed uh, amidst the crisis. Similarly, you want to have an idea about how you're going to respond to press inquiries. If it's a significant event that gets press attention, the company should know whether they're going to release a pre-prepared statement or whether they're going to hire a third party to help them with press communications. Whatever that strategy is, the folks at the facility or at the location of the Fat Cat event should know how to respond if the press shows up. There's uh, also, um, as, as part of the crisis management plan, uh, there'd be the, the follow-up actions um, and maybe reminders at the same time about uh, no mea culpa. Right after an accident, like we talked about in our last podcast, you have uh, many people that are prepared to say, oh, it was all my fault, or it wasn't my fault, it was so-and-so's fault. We try to avoid those types of conclusions uh, right after an accident where emotion is driving that answer instead of a thoughtful analysis of the events that occurred and what the likely causes of, of those events were or are. Now, Frank, you just regurgitated or, or shared a lot of information with our audience and a lot of the audience may be a little bit on the overwhelmed side because that seems like an awfully tall order to fill. Is there any reason that uh, an employer is limited to generating one of these on their own as opposed to working with some sort of consultants or uh, provider of this type of service? You know, we, we, we know of consultants, and I think you and I had discussed uh, maybe bringing one of those consultants on to talk about some of these issues uh, more specifically. Uh, but I, I think that if the employer is not prepared uh, or doesn't have the experience to identify the issues themselves, 
uh, they're well served by going to a to another source to get assistance. Uh, I would remind them that if they're getting assistance after an accident, anything they say to a consultant that's not a lawyer could be discoverable, probably is discoverable. Uh, that goes back to our privilege discussion from last week or from our last podcast. Uh, but if they're preparing for an event that hasn't occurred yet, then I'd feel pretty safe using a consultant in most jurisdictions. Uh, of course, you can con- they could consult with an attorney as well. And under any circumstance, consulting with an attorney should remain privileged. Frank, you listed off quite a laundry list of things that the crisis management plan should include by definition, by the length of that laundry list. It seems to me that not only are people going to be emotionally frazzled and emotionally afraid, but there's going to be so many decisions that are going to have to be made in such a short period of time, unless those decisions are made well in advance of the fat cat happening, there's going to be no way for the employer to come up with a meaningful response plan. I mean, it's going to be three days late and, and, and woefully short if they do. Is that kind of how you're feeling about this as well? Yeah, it is. That I think you're exactly right, John. I will say, like you, I've had clients that that had a, a fat cat event and, you know, they call us at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning and say, hey, we just had this happen. What should we do? And, you know, they don't have a crisis management plan. So we're able to rattle these steps off to them based on our experience. That That's an option. However, uh, the option I like better, I feel like the better approach is for each work location to have developed uh, a crisis management plan and to be familiar with the crisis management plan. What we've, we've learned over time is that basically all humans do well when they know exactly what is required of them next. It helps them relax more. It helps them feel more secure and more confident. So if you lay out those steps in advance, if you're thoughtful about what to do uh, when a crisis specifically occurs, when a crisis occurs and you've got the specific steps, then the um, the management team on site is more likely to successfully complete all the steps in a more confident and relaxed way. I, I don't know if you ever watch, John, if you ever watch the airplane crash reenactments that they have on television. I watch them all the time personally. Uh, but they have the pilots have these checklists that they go through. Oh, engines are out. What do we do? And it, it has a step-by-step process. They go to their quick reference chart and and start going through the punch list of how to make the engines turn on again. And uh, you know, some of these cockpit recordings, the pilots are just so chill. You know, they're falling from forty thousand feet with no forward thrust, gravity sucking them toward the ground but they're calm, just getting the engine, trying to restart the engines. And I'd think about crisis management plans in the same way, because obviously that quick reference chart or that quick reference handbook, that's that's uh, crisis management plans. And, and then you kind of alluded to something that I was thinking I'd ask you about, which is, you know, having it in advance gives you an opportunity, kind of like an OSHA inspection team and, and OSHA inspection protocol to, to practice with the team and to, to vet out the crisis management plan or, or if we're going to continue with the response to OSHA team to, to, to vet out that process and to make sure that 
it works for that employer and, and that it isn't something that the employer is not going to be able to, to rise to the challenge of or, or, you know, that the folks that are assigned specific roles have the opportunity to, you know, determine whether or not they're actually capable of filling those roles. Um, what do you think about sort of crisis management drills, drilling on the plan that's in place? All branches of of um, emergency responders rehearse how they're going to respond to an emergency. When a firefighter goes out and responds to a fire, uh, even if they're a brand new boot that's never been to a fire before, they've at least practiced going to a fire before, right? Uh, and, and why do they do that? Why do they practice? So they, they have more comfort and more fluency in their response. And so anytime you can find time to rehearse a response, uh, I, I think there's, there's a real advantage to it. Uh, also, in rehearsing a response, you find shortcomings in the response that you're able to address and correct. And that's another real advantage. Uh, that way, whenever you go to put the plan into place, you've had a chance to, to iron out some, maybe even all of the wrinkles. Uh, so yeah, to, your, to, your, to answer your question directly, John, yes, I, I like the idea if an employer can find time to, to rehearse responses to, to crises. Practicing makes you feel like you could handle the emergency better. Can the fact that you have the crisis management plan or that you practice or drill on the crisis management plan be held against you? Held against you by OSHA? Yes, sir. I can't imagine how they would use that. If you're, I guess it depends on how you're practicing. If you're, if you're practicing, um, you know, being untruthful when OSHA shows up, then yeah, that could be used against you. But I can't imagine anybody doing that. I I, I don't know. What do you? Think? Well, let me ask you a little differently. And, and I've heard this from clients before, where they're concerned about the fact that they do this type of practice, they do this type of drill, being held against them as you know somehow you know, being perceived by the public as a whole and maybe OSHA as well as somehow indicative of the fact that they're expecting that there's going to be some sort of problem. I personally don't think so. I think that it's just a matter of, of good preparation. We don't ever expect that a tornado is going to hit either, but there is that chance that it does hit. And so it's not a bad idea to do the tornado drill or the fire drill or, you know, if you're in the wrong place, the earthquake drill. I don't think it's, it's harmful, but what's your thought? Well, same. I, I don't see how it's harmful to think about how you're going to respond to a crisis. Like I said, I think um, you know, all emergency responders do so. I, I don't understand why why an employer would be dinged for doing it. But, you know, it could be a factually, uh, it could be a fact-specific question. Maybe it's an industry that gets additional scrutiny. Um, you know, maybe a, you know, some, a, a nuclear power reactor or something where they're practicing now, that's a terrible example because they do practice. I was uh, just going to say that they practice all the all, time. All the time, yeah. Now, I, I, I just can't think of, of why it would be a negative to, to practice response to a crisis. I would even go as far as to say in some cases, resp practicing responses to crises might be a, a, an advantage, demonstrating that you've thought it through and thought through how you're going to handle uh, a crisis. For instance, 
the the first element of a crisis management plan that I mentioned is uh, taking care of the employee. So uh, they got hurt. And so one of the things we'd be thinking about is, okay, first responders, how we're going to contact first responders, how we're going to get people here as quickly as possible. You know, OSHA's got that four minute rule to get, to get first responders there within four minutes. So rehearsing that and thinking that through, I, I'd, I'd argue that that's a, an advantage to an argument that, that you've, you know, you thought about a way to make sure first responders could get there within, within the time that, that OSHA purports to demand. Well, yeah. And, and it's always interesting how that four minutes is calculated and whether it's four minutes or five minutes or whatever, but that, that's probably a topic for another podcast. What do you think about, uh, as part of the crisis management plan, including uh, communications to employees. Do you think that that's something that should be included as part of the crisis management plan, or is that something that should be part of some other part of the plan? So employee communications, I think it's not hard to include an outline in a crisis management plan for an anticipated event. Uh, I, I think the language that you typically include in a in a in a posting is pretty predictable and pretty consistent from incident to incident but then also employee communications demonstrating that that you care about employees you know one of the communication points to consider in advance is whether the company is going to provide counselors on site i can't think of any fatality i've had where the employer didn't provide counseling on site or or a conveniently located counselor and so identifying that in advance and deciding how that opportunity is going to be communicated to employees is an easy ad for the crisis management plan. And it really relieves the the crisis management team of a lot of burden at the time of the event by having, uh, one, the communications in place already, or at least a generic version that they can personalize easily as well as what they're going to communicate, the topics of communication like anybody who who needs to go see a crisis management counselor, here you go. If you've got a bloodborne pathogen program or you had employees that were inadvertently exposed uh, to bloodborne pathogens uh, and and that's something that you're able to foresee as an employer, then having a response plan with regard to uh, you know, you'd have it in your bloodborne pathogen program already, but you might have a response plan for somebody who was inadvertently exposed that you wouldn't have expected to be exposed. And and if, if, if they're not covered by the bloodborne pathogen plan, then an employer would be, um, could, you know, may be well advised to consider in advance how they would treat that. So somebody gets it contacts um, blood or or some bodily fluid during an event. How how are you going to help that employee through that? Clean them up, change the clothes. I mean, what whatever. Thinking through some of those elements in advance again uh, saves a lot of stress and burden on the crisis management team at the time of the crisis. Well, and, and Frank, the, the next question is going to be about kind of communications externally, whether it be to the public, to the press, to other regulators, and we're not really talking about communications to OSHA, but, you know, is there any harm in having, for lack of a better term, kind of pre-prepared, canned 
template type responses from which to build off of in terms of customizing and tailoring that response to the unique circumstances of the particular disaster. So I've seen two types of press releases uh, or two types of uh, of ways to handle press the press and, and outside communications. Uh, one is where the company just retains an outside press agent to handle all that. The other is where they do it internally. And, and when they do it internally, uh, almost without fail, all of the press releases I've ever read really read very similarly. So if they're going to do it internally, I feel like it's not hard to have a, again, that template for a press release that basically or typically says, you know, we're really sad about what happened. We're cooperating with OSHA and other federal and other authorities in their investigations. And um, in the meantime, we've taken action to ensure that no other employees are exposed, something along those lines. I find the communications to be just very boilerplate um, from case to case, even though they haven't talked to each other. What's your experience? Communications that are generated, for lack of a better term, internally or internally and with, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of uh, general counsel seem to me to be kind of the, I mean, I'd go one step further. A lot of them say things like, we had an incident, um, you know, we're, we're sorry we had an incident and we'll release further details when we have more information. And they're pretty meaningless and quite frankly, I think a lot of them have a tendency to stir adverse sentiment and in some cases a feeling that the employer is a little bit on the callous side. I think the ones that I've seen that are prepared with the assistance of a communications expert and, and are really kind of more tailored to the unique facts and circumstances of that particular incident and you know how the responders have interacted at the point at which the release is made and, and you know, how the workforce has responded, et cetera, those tend to be much more meaningful, much more impactful. One thing I learned about hiring a press agent or, or somebody with that kind of expertise is that they frequently have relationships at some of the, the local news outlets. And so that relationship they're able to leverage to get maybe a, a better spin on the, the press release or the story. And and that's an advantage that surprised me the first time I, I ran into it about 15 years ago. Uh, and so that's another thing to consider uh, instead of preparing it internally and and just having, a, having it flash up on the screen that this is what the employer said, this generic message. Uh, the other message could be uh, a lot warmer, as you suggest, using that press agent. Yeah, and, and, and your point about the media context is really a good one. They seem to know people and you know have a more sympathetic audience or sympathetic questioner, and it just seems to, to work a little bit better for the employer overall. Well, Frank, we, we've kind of reached the end of the time that we're supposed to be recording these for, and as usual, we probably went a little bit beyond it. Any thoughts or suggestions or ideas our audience you'd like to leave them with? Uh, just the, the same one we started with. I think planning in advance is is always preferable to reacting uh, in a crisis. 
it's, it's better to be proactive than reactive generally. That's typically my thoughts on a crisis management plan. I, I think uh, being proactive uh, is probably healthier in the long run. As long as we're running a health and safety podcast, talk about the health of your crisis response team, give them the tools they need in advance, right? So they're able to be more relaxed and in the moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, everybody, this brings to an end another episode of Safety Perspectives from Region 6. This concludes our three-part podcast on Fat Cat Incidents. And we look forward to having y'all come back and visit with us next time around. Have a good one. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.